You're with Cheryl Lee, that radio chick. Welcome to the Still Rocking It podcast, where we'll have news, reviews and interviews with some of our favourite Australian musicians and artists. Today we speak with 74 years young Brian Cadd, still on the road and heading our way with his mate of 40 years, Russell Morris. We chat about his early days as a child performer and then his various bands, including the group Axiom, the bootleg family band and the Flying Burrito Brothers, and then his illustrious solo career. Brian also shares details about a near-death experience and also talks about his involvement at the start of entertainment industry charity Support Act with David Daisy Day. What's Brian Cat up to now? Let's find out. Hi, Brian. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Cheryl. How's it going? Pretty good, thanks. We're pretty excited to have you and Russell coming to our fabulous venue, The Gov, soon. And we'll talk about that in a minute. In the meantime, Brian, you've got a bio longer than both your arms, and we pretty much need to have a 10-part series to cover everything you've done. (laughs) You were discovered at a very, very young age. Were either of your parents musical? Brian, was music in your destiny from the moment you were born? It might have been. My mother was a soprano. She was a soprano with a uh, morbid fear of performing. Anyway, when she got married, I came along first. And uh, we had a we had an old piano in the hallway, as a lot of families did back then. And when I was quite small, I would sit on the, on the thing and I'd work out little tunes, just, you know, picking away. And my mother was very inspired by that. So she got me lessons and then eventually she got me uh, an audition for Channel 7, which had only just opened in And uh, I won the audition, which was to join a kiddies band. It meant that for a year at about 12 or something, I'd sat on television every Saturday morning with this little band. And, you know, I tell you, that was about the most amazing intro you could have into showbiz. You know, I, I really knew what I wanted to do from that moment on. There was never really any sort of plan B for you. You knew that music was going to be your life. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't long after that, I was 13 or 14 or something, I joined my elder cousin's band, and he incidentally went on to play with Johnny Young years later. You know, I was so young, my father used to have to accompany me to the pubs, you know, and there'd be some really rough clubs and pubs out there, and there in the back, right at the back against the back wall was my father often with a rather ashen face, waiting to take me home at the end of the night. So I don't think I remember ever truly wanting to do anything else. I moved to Hobart when I was 15 and joined a rock band there and played all over the place. By the time I arrived in Melbourne, I was about 17, 16, 17, and I just knew it was just a matter of getting through high school and and then I was was just going to go and do what I wanted to do. I didn't even make it through high school. I joined a band and uh, ran off with the circus in effect. (laughs) So you survived the baptism of fire, went on to have an amazing career, starting with the group. The group was a a real real cornerstone for me because at that time, the majority of Australian bands and acts were not really original. They were modelled after American or English acts. Most of the records that were made were foreign records that were then, you know, covered by Australian acts. And um, I was lucky enough to, with another guy, we were poached from a band called the Jackson Kings, and Ronnie Charles and I were asked to join the group. And the wonderful thing about the group was, was that they'd already established themselves with several big hits. They wrote all their own stuff, and they were signed to CBS. So it was an incredible on-ramp for me just to go from 
basically, you know, a band that just played around the, the clubs and stuff to a band that already had hit records and a record deal and wrote all this stuff. It was fantastic. There was many influences and we were singing all the songs that a lot of immigrants were bringing in from the UK in particular and a little bit from America as well. But you had the benefit of homegrown songwriters. Yeah, which were quite rare in those days. Not long before that caught up because the thing that worked against the overseas ones was that they weren't immediately available to an audience. So, for instance, they would release a song and be a number one record around the state, but the chances of them coming and touring were very, very, very small. But if an Australian act had a number one record, they're probably going to be playing at the pub on Friday night. <laughs> so they became a lot more accessible. And so Australian audiences just you know, fell into the pattern of, you know, looking out for Australian acts and buying Australian records and going to Australian concerts. And that's where it all turned. It all became the beginning of what is now a wonderful homegrown industry. But back in those days, they were the very beginnings of that. And I was very lucky, and I count myself very lucky, to have been around at the beginning of all that. And you went from the group to Axiom with your mate, Glenn Shorrock, who, by the way, was here in Adelaide last week, last weekend. What was he doing? He played at one of our venues called The Bridgeway. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Did he behave himself? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Yes, he's a bit old now. We're all a bit older. We think we're still naughty, but it's, you know, we're not really. <laughs> You've had some amazing success with Axiom and the Bootleg Family Band and then in America, the Flying Burritos and, of course, your solo career. Let's talk about your next visit. We're lucky here to have had you here for a couple of RPA tours, including just last May. I've seen you at a beach restaurant in Adelaide and Harndorf, actually both on the same weekend. You've been to our mm-hmm. Trinity sessions, our Adelaide Fringe and... I think I've seen you a couple of times in the backyard at Sue and Graham's. And you're coming back. That's right. With that other naughty boy. <laughs> we're coming back and we're playing the Gov. Big thrill. That's what's one of my favourite gigs in Australia. To do it with the uh, old man is, is, well, he's not old, except he's younger than me. But to do it with him is always fun, always fun. And uh, I, I always think that we have as much or more fun than the audience do because it's, it's based on a very old friendship. And so we get away with murder with each other. <laughs> you sure do. It's been described as a beautiful entertainment romance, actually. <laughs> a romance. <laughs> romance. Yeah, yeah. I know that you're a very busy man. We haven't got a lot of time. We, you know, we could chat all day. But apart from your amazing musical and songwriting career, people may not know that you've been a really, really successful producer as well. Yeah, I've had, I've had some success over the years. When Axiom folded, I'd been on the road for a while and I just was sick of being in bands and, you know, I wanted to sort of stay home for a while. And Ray Tudor had some stable label at that stage and, you know, he was an old mate and he said, Listen, why don't you come and produce a few acts for me, you know? And so it was a great break for me because I got to work with really, really competent engineers, which is good because I basically didn't know what I was doing most of the time, but I gradually learned how. And I really loved that period. It was wonderful. And then we started to find acts that were too rock and roll for Fable. So we started the bootleg record label and we assigned some wonderful people. And then I, I did an album myself and Ginger Man came off the album and was a hit. And there I was back on the road again. I don't know how it quite happened, but 
There I was. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I've stayed on it really pretty much Well I think that might be time for a song Let's play that hit now From the White on White album from 1976 The song that got Brian Cad on the road again And he's never stopped since You're with Shirley, that radio chick Back with more from Brian Cad straight after this Ginger Man, Brian Cad. Over the years, I've been lucky to do, you know, some film scores and, and lots of commercials and, and, you know, music for series and stuff. And I think that, you know, life's a lot about variety. It's about making life interesting by doing several different versions of yourself. And, you know, I'd be out in the road for a while and then I'd come back into town and I'd do a series of pieces of music for a film and then I'd go and produce a record in Adelaide or Brisbane or something and, and I'd go on the road again. And all of those things remained fresh and interesting to me because I wasn't doing any one of them all the time. I was doing lots of little bits and pieces. It made everything feel fresh to me. They say that variety is the spice of life, don't they? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yes, they certainly do. Here's something that I didn't know until today. Now, you've written a song for the Master's Apprentices. We've got them appearing here very soon as well with their new drummer, who you may or may not know, Gary Burrows. My God, Gary's playing with a, a new singing lead. Craig Holden, brother of Mark Holden, and they're doing their first gig together very, very soon, actually. What was the song that you wrote for the Masters? It was a song called Elevator Drive. Oh, that's a great yeah. song. Thank you. Um, and it's got very cosmic lyrics because we're all being very cosmic. But it was really about the fact that they just reformed or just changed their format or whatever, and they weren't back in writing mode, but the record company was demanding a single. So they asked us to write a song for them, and we were lucky enough to have that one recorded, and it became a hit. And Jimmy and I had been friends for, like, I can't remember a time I didn't know him. Same with Russell and Glenn. And it's a bit of a, it's a real applauder, if you like, to uh, Jimmy, because right up until the time he passed away, he was still legendary, you know, and he'd still turn up, you know, and be on shows and do all that sort of stuff. And people really loved the Masters. People who were Masters of Fantasy fans were really genuine fans. They had really dedicated fans. And it was a terrific period in Australian music, I think. Yes, oh, definitely. And we're very, very spoiled, of course, because they're based here in Adelaide. We get to see them play quite regularly. We had them play at Adelaide Oval not that long ago. Did a fabulous job. Now, also, oh, you wrote a song for Ronnie Burns, which happens to be my husband's first cousin. What did you write for oh. Ronnie? And that was a hit for him. And then it was recorded by Paul Jones in England, who was a singer from Anthem Man, and he had a hit for too. We talk, of course, of the song When I Was Six Years Old. Here's Ronnie Burns' version now, written by Brian Cadd. You're with Shirley, that radio chick. We'll speak more with Brian straight after this. When I was six years old, when I was six years old. The very, very first song you wrote was a hit, wasn't it? Yeah, that was with a group, and it was kind of funny because we joined the band and songwriters, of course, and so pretty soon after we joined, the A&R guys at CBS said, we're coming down in two weeks and we want to we wanna hear all your new material because we want a new single out to celebrate the new lineup. So we're coming down. So everyone sort of split up a bit because I'd never written a song before and the drummer had never written a song before. 
So I got the drummer, or he got me. And, uh, you know, we mostly just sat around and drank a few beers and give it a bit of a go every now and again. One day we were sitting there and he was just doing a sort of a... on the hi-hat. And I sort of went... Dang, 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 dang. And we didn't know what we had, but we knew that there was something kind of cool about that. Anyway, in due course, we finished the song. And uh, then... The guys came down from CBS and the other songwriters played them their songs and they said, have you got any other stuff? And someone said, oh, well, Brian and Richard have written a song. And we said, oh, okay. And we played them the song and they said, oh, that's a single. That's definitely the single. <laughs> and so it got to be the single and it was the first song that I'd ever written and it got to be number one in about three states or four states and it was called Woman, You're Breaking Me. Beautiful, beautiful song. Was that inspired by a broken heart? No. I wish I could say it probably was, but it wasn't. It was really in the days when songs were sort of glorified nursery rhymes in a way. I mean, they weren't yeah. terribly deep songs. You love me and now you don't love me and I'm broken heart. I bought a new car, you know. And there wasn't yeah. anything terribly deep about this stuff. But we just liked the idea of a woman, you're breaking me, like breaking me down, rather than breaking my heart kind of direction. And, you know, kids loved it because it was so simple, but it was also fast. And nobody ever wanted to dance slow in the 60s. You couldn't put a ballad on them for anything. They had to be booking away there. And so it was a perfect dance record. And we were very lucky we got it away. And every now and again, I'd do it. I'd do it as a little medley with such a lovely way on stage. Not in, in our show, but sometimes my show just for the hell of it. And it's amazing how many people sing along madly with it. You know, and they must have obviously been there in the beginning when it first came out. Time to have a group song, I reckon. G-R-O-O-P. <laughs> From the Floor Filler Killers. New Directions Volume 3 album Such a Lovely Way Such a lovely way Such a lovely, lovely way to say Good night I'm reminded of this today because I'm the fundraising coordinator for Support Act SA and we had our monthly fundraising luncheon today. You were involved early on in the setup of the fabulous charity that is Support Act. Yeah, I was one of the earlier directors of it. And when I joined the board, you know, I said, the one thing we need are regional state organisations because we only have this one organisation in Sydney, which, you know, is one for all. So it was my task to open support at branches around Australia. At the same time, I'd started this Devonair's lunch group. It was just a fun thing. And it took off like mad. It was just for the industry people. And they used to donate, you know, five bucks each or whatever it was to the support at charity. And we raised lots and lots of money. We still do. Several of them are still going. You're still going. And Melbourne is and Sydney is. And Perth has an annual support at auction. But I'm really proud of that. And I'm very happy that I got a chance to get that organised. And I had some amazing people who helped, one of which was Gary Barrett. And the other one was a guy called David Day. Daisy's not with us anymore, but he really was tired of getting that up and running. And, you know, just, I don't know whether you went to the early ones, but I used to go over there because they were the most fun. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> made everything fun. Oh, he sure did. <laughs> we had a great day today. Swanee John Swan came in and saw us today, which was nice because he's in Adelaide at the moment as well to do a show this coming weekend. And okay. a good day was had by all, and lots of money was raised as we do every month. Now, I was just going to quickly ask you something unrelated. It seems really, really scary and hard to believe that you were caught in a flood, a flash flood in Queensland about. 
20 years ago and you got washed away in your car and survived. Yeah. Oh, it was a bit scary, actually. I was living up in the Gold Coast and they are victims of what they call flash floods and they have running up in the mountainous areas, which is where I was. They have little creeks, you know, happily run through meadows and below mountains and stuff and they're just lovely little things. Until you get a flash flood or a giant tide or both, and then they fill rapidly up with water and they become actual rivers. And it was at night, I was coming home and it was about nine o'clock at night, so it was dark. Oh, I went around the corner. Yeah, I went around a blind corner, which I'd done a thousand times and it was over a little tiny bridge and a little tiny creek. And when I turned around, I drove straight into this massive river that had happened and it just took the car off down what was in a river and the car started sinking below the line. And the only thing that saved me was the fact that it had windy windows. So I was able to wind the windows down and swim out and then some bloke dragged me out of the water. You know, I mean, once I was safe, I was safe and I didn't really think about it too much. But then I started to realise how unbelievably claustrophobic I'd become. And I am to this day. I can't can't be in small spaces. Which no, I guess you is were fair incredibly lucky by the sounds of it. Well, if it had we've... been electronic windows, they wouldn't yeah. have opened because the electric's already just gone. That's right. I was also just going to touch on oh, one of the more amusing things. You mentioned that you've done quite a few movies and soundtracks and commercials and what have you, including Album Purple. Oh yeah. <laughs> And it's funny, I can't get any of my kids or grandkids to watch it now because it's so corny. But back in the day, it was really a breakthrough movie because previous to that, Australian films didn't show a lot of the naughty bits, but that was really the first one that, that did. And it was a comedy, so it was a bit Benny Hill in a way. It got away with that, you know, rather than being all serious. Um, it was a bit naughty. And it, was, it was a bit naughty. It wasn't pornographic or anything. It just really mostly showed... You know, the top note is I did the soundtrack with an arranger friend of mine and we used his, he had a big projector thing and they gave us a big reel of all the stuff. They included all the outtakes, which which did include some of the really naughty bits. Here's a little bit of the theme song for Alvin Purple. From 1973, starring Graham Blundell, was a major hit with Australian audiences, becoming the most commercially successful Australian film released at that time, breaking the box office record previously set in 1966 by They're a Weird Mob. children follow you into the music industry at all? No, they're all doing things, although I have a nine-year-old granddaughter that I'm actually staying with on the Gold Coast who plays four instruments and writes her own songs, so at some point I think she'll be a force to be reckoned with. Wowee. Um, yeah, but that's for the next generation. Huh? Yeah, I know you're a really busy man, Ryan, and I so appreciate you stopping and having a chat with us today ahead of your visit with Russell. People should just get onto the Googleometer and get their tickets. Yep, yeah. I think I've taken more of your time than I should have. Oh, well, that's all right. We've had fun, haven't we? <laughs> Thank you so much. I shall see you down the front. I'll look for you. Yeah, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Simply cannot have an interview with Brian Cadd and not play his hit, Little Ray of Sunshine, and I think we might dedicate this to his very, very talented granddaughter. Little Ray of Sunshine is coming to the world. You're with Cheryl Lee, that radio chick. 
thank you so much for joining me on the Still Rocking It podcast. Hope to catch you again next time. Get out when you can, support Aussie music, and I'll see you down the front.